Actually, little Danny gave us kind of a nice illustration of lamenting and weeping. And it's interesting because he's actually the age that we're going to look at, because this is actually a very shocking sort of passage uh, for us. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, the passage that Dan read for us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you will help us. We pray for your grace and your mercy as we open up this passage. And we pray that you, you would give us insight into why this passage is here in this scripture, what this means, why you have inspired this through the power of your Holy Spirit for all generations to look upon, to meditate, to think about. Give us grace now, we pray, and help us to see you in the midst of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. History is an interesting thing as you read it. I love history. I read a lot of it. Uh, But history in many ways is just an accumulation of individuals and individuals who who act in certain ways. I I have a very large book entitled Fateful Choices, and it it deals with history and and, and, and a choice that an individual made that, that changed the course of history. Uh, especially when you think about warfare. When wars come, uh, we, we have big names of generals and everything, but, but really it, it involves lots of people, both soldiers and civilians, making decisions, doing things, and things like that. Uh, and, there's, and in warfare, there's casualties, and we're going to see that in this passage. And eventually, though, the, the ultimate casualty as as the book of Matthew opens up, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we're going to see a baby in this passage, and a baby that is that, that there's making great efforts to protect this baby, and others are making great efforts to murder this baby. And we're going to see that this baby is God's son. And so in the midst of this, we're going to focus a little bit on some of the individuals. And so if, if you were going to organize this thinking in terms of how we would look at this passage, we're going to look at Joseph. And Joseph was righteous. And then we're going to see Herod. Herod was wicked. And then we're going to see God, and God is amazing. And those are the, that's the structure that we're going to look at. Now, Matthew looks at, as Matthew is writing his, his gospel, he is constantly taking us back to the Old Testament. He wants to show us that all of this is great history. It's all linked into the promises that God has made. And if your Bible uh, kind of puts out the Old Testament quotations, separates them. If you just look at Matthew 1, 2, and 3, you see all of these Old Testament quotes. And in this passage that we're going to look at, uh, several more happen. Verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew's going to tie in Jesus uh, coming out of Egypt with that prophecy. And then verse 18 about Ramah and and, uh, the weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. And then although it's not a it's a summary at the end of verse 23. Notice there, uh, it talks about he shall be called a Nazarene according to the prophets. And so all of this was predicted and planned because this is an absolutely chaotic passage, okay? Like things are getting really weird and chaos. And, uh, and, and here what Luke, Matthew is saying is this was all planned before the foundation of the world. This is going exactly according to God's plan. So let's begin by the first heading, which is that Joseph is a righteous man. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 19, that's already been announced to us. 
It says, and then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and some of your Bibles will say being a righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man, and in many ways, in this section that we're looking at today, Joseph is very much a hero. He really is, and, uh, and the focus is actually on him and what he does. Now, in this passage, in this larger section that we've looked at, actually, interestingly, because I don't, there's nothing else like this in the New Testament except when you get to the book of Revelation and John has these visions and, and such, is that there's five dreams. There's five dreams in this passage, uh, not just this little one, but we've been seeing them. And each of those dreams, four of them come to Joseph and one of them comes to the, the wise men. But the thing about Joseph is, and this is one of the reasons why Joseph is called a wise man, a righteous man, is because when Joseph gets a word from the Lord, he does it. He obeys. And sometimes he obeys immediately. Now let's trace this through with your, in your Bibles. Look at chapter 1 in verse 20, for instance. It says, and be, and, but he, th he thought about these things, while he thought about these things, what to do with Mary and, and all this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Then if you look in verse 24, he obeys. Verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Now notice here, Joseph hears a word from God and he obeys. That Joseph, that's what it means to be a righteous man. In chapter 2 and verse 12, we have a dream that comes to the wise men, but they also obey. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not depart to Herod, they depart their own country their own way. But then in verse 13 of chapter 2, after they departed, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek to the young child to destroy him. And look at verse 14. Here's this obedient man. Then when he arose, he took the young child and his mother, and notice this, by night. It's almost as if he got up and said, hey, we're out of here. Let's go, let's go, let's go. By night and departed for Egypt. Again, look at verse 19. So then they're in G Egypt and it says, and when uh, Herod was, now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child, life or dead. Verse 21, here's this obedient man. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But he was concerned because Herod's son is now reigning and he was concerned about the safety because it looked like he was actually thinking of going back to Bethlehem, thinking that's where he was supposed to be. But no, verse 22, it says this at the end, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in Nazareth. So Joseph is this wonderful man who, when God tells him to do something, he does it. When God tells him to go this way. And Joseph plays this huge part in protecting the very son of God in this. During a very difficult and confusing time in Joseph's life, he just keeps obeying. He doesn't even seem to question. I'm sure he questioned, like, what in the world is going on? The, you know, we, had, we had angels coming to shepherds. We had angels coming and speaking to us. We had wise men from the east showing up. We have this baby who has been proclaimed to us to be the son of God. And now all of a sudden, he's being hunted down. All of a sudden, we have to run. All of a sudden, we have to hide. All of a sudden, we have to sneak out at night. We have to do all this. Then we have to live in Egypt for a period of time. And then we have to move back. And then we have to move up to Nazareth. What in the world is going on? But you know what? Joseph just did his part. 
He just did his part. He just obeyed. He just did what God said to do. And you know what? It wasn't all glamorous. When you're running, when you're, when you're going at night with trying to keep Mary and his little baby safe, and you're going at night across the Sinai Desert, hope, and at the same time that you're doing that, you're getting, you're getting these, this baby, and this, there's soldiers coming in the other side and slaughtering the children, and you're getting this baby around. It's not all glamorous at all. Camping out at night in the Sinai Desert, camping out trying to get your wife, moving into Egypt, not knowing the language, not knowing the people, trying to find some connections. It wasn't all glamorous. But he did his part. And you know what? He did a big part, by the way. Joseph raised Jesus for much of his life. When, when in Luke, when Jesus is 12 and he's in the temple, Joseph's still there in his life. Joseph oversaw that Jesus was taught. He learned how to read. He learned the scriptures. He took him to synagogue. He taught him his trade. He gave him a work ethic. And Jesus grows and grows. And as Jesus is growing, he's beginning to understand Joseph's not really my dad in one sense. My heavenly father is my dad. And Joseph was cool with all of that. And I just want to encourage all of us by the life of Joseph here. We all have a part. You all have a part. You have a calling from God. There's a reason why you're here on earth. There's a reason why we're here. We have a part in this beautiful drama that God is sovereignly working out. And we're to do our part. We're to do our part. And sometimes it's confusing and we don't know what our part is or whether it's significant or what's happening here. But this was, this was his part. And Joseph just simply did well what God put in yours. And I want to encourage you. Don't, we live in such a, a, a silly age, a silly age of selfies and a silly age where people think that they're significant and important because a lot of people see what they're doing or because the cut of their clothes is cool or because they drive a certain car, that that's what is, is important. And that's, that stuff is just feeds us and makes us really silly people. I want you to realize, and we all need to realize, that the impact that you're going to have in life is going to be in the ordinary life. It's going to be in the people that God has sovereignly put in your hand and in, in, your, in your life and in your orbit. It's going to be your, your family and your, your children and, and your workmates and your neighbors and your friends and the impact that you're going to have on them. And it's going to be in ordinary things. It's going to be in changing diapers or changing oil or it's going to be in going to work faithfully and living for Christ. It's going to be being honest. It's going to be just doing these things. And even it's going to be obeying God and being faithful when things seem to be spinning out of control, trusting him, believing in him and saying, God, what would you have for me to do today? I don't I don't need People applauding me. I don't need, I don't need it. We, we really have actually raised a generation of people who do not think that anything is significant unless you can film it with a camera. Unless they appear in that film and they've done something significant. Wait, 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 get the, get the camera. And, and when something significant starts to happen in our generation, people run for their cameras and start. And you know what? I think that's messing with our heads. And we need to realize that, that this, it's the simple things, the things that God has called us to do, it's being faithful. And Joseph is really, in many ways, an unsung hero, but he's very much the focus of this. Joseph was a righteous man. But then we have Herod, who is a very, very wicked man. So again, let's look at the story. In, in chapter, in verse 13, it says, now they, when they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and flee 
run fast to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. So you see, he doesn't even give him a date. He doesn't give him an estimated time of departure. He just says, go to Egypt and stay until I tell you, you can come back. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. <clears throat> and that seems so strange in light of all that's been happening so far with angels visiting and wise men coming from the east and everything. Now, this baby is going to die unless you get him out of here. And so verse 14, and when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, for it that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Now notice, in the midst of all of this chaos that's going on, God is sovereignly working, and he's he, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, centuries before he said, I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. My son will be in Egypt. I'm going to call him out. Here, Hosea is prophesying, and he sees this as the calling out of Israel, but Israel is a type of Christ, and, and, and that's what Matthew sees in it. So then the, the focus turns to this wicked man, Herod. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men. Now let's pause here because I want to introduce Herod a little bit to you. This, of course, is Herod the Great, and he's called Great because he was actually a great leader. He, was, he, was, he, he did a lot of great things, including building the temple, believe it or not. But he was also an absolutely insane, murderous maniac. He was, he was. Honestly, I can't even begin to tell you, as I've studied this man's life, I can't even begin to tell you what this man was like. But he, he had multiple wives. He was very jealous of the fact that he wasn't Jewish, and the Jewish people hated him for that. His wife, Marianne, was, she did have Jewish blood running in her, and his two sons from her did have Jewish blood running in her. And, uh, and so he was always jealous of her, although he called her his favorite wife. So whenever Herod left town, he always left orders that if he died, to, to kill Marianne and both of, the, of, of his sons. Because he didn't want them to, uh, to somehow, they, they knew this, by the way. If he goes out of town and he dies, we're going to kill you. They knew this. King ordered us to do this. Why? Because he didn't want them to order his assassination so her sons could take over. It's just crazy. And then she had multiple affairs, and every time he heard about one of the affairs, uh, he, he didn't kill her, but he killed, he killed every guy. And it could have even been a lie. So if you want to get rid of somebody in Herod's day, just say, hey, yeah, I, I saw him flirting with your wife. The guy's gone. He's like dead. And this is the kind of guy Herod was. Boom, boom, boom. Finally, he does kill his wife, and he kills his two sons. And this, is, this, this, this will give you some idea of how wicked this man was. He was so hated that he decided that when he died, there would be great celebrations, and he didn't want that. So this was his plan that he wrote when he dies. He told his men, when I die, or when I'm dying, I want you to go out into, into, uh, this, into Jerusalem and into this area, and I want you to rest the high priest, all the Sanhedrin. I want you to rest all the holy men. I want you to rest all of the, all of the great men, uh, and, and I want you to bring them into a stadium. And when I die, I want you to kill every single one of them so that there will be mourning in the land when I die. That's historical fact. That's what he said. Now, thankfully, his people said, you are insane. And when you die, we're going to be happy. And they didn't do that. So I want you to understand this guy because it helps you to understand that this passage is very historically accurate and is very possible. Look at verse 16. And when Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. Now think of a man like this. And the word deceived here, some of your Bibles say mocked. 
And actually the word is translated uh, 10 out of 11 times in the New Testament by the word mocked. It means to, to, and here it's used to deceive somebody to make them look bad to mock them, to make fun of them by deceiving them and making it be like if, if somebody did something to somebody because they were their enemy and they wanted to deceive them in such a way that they would believe it and they would look gullible and silly and foolish and they would mock them. And that's how he took this. They didn't, the wise men had no idea that they were, that they had no intent of, that, intent of that, but he took it like that. He was deceived. Who deceives Herod the Great? What do these wise men think they are? How do they think that they can get away with this? And he got extremely angry. And that's actually, that's actually a very good translation. Extremely angry. This dangerous man got furious. That would be like Hitler or Stalin getting furious and angry and, and, and having the power to do something about it. And notice what he did. And he sent forth and he put to death all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all of its districts not only just Bethlehem, so think of, say, Greenville as Bethlehem. He's going out to Shakeleyville. He's coming over to Trumbull County. He's going to Jamestown. He's going down to Hermitage. He's going the whole surrounding regions. And they're to kill two-year-olds and under, according to the time that he had determined from the wise men. Now, sometimes you'll hear people, Bible scholars and people like this say, oh, Jesus must have been up to two years old by this time. I don't believe that's true at all. I don't believe that's true at all. I think Jesus is still very, very, very young. If Herod determined that that baby was two years old, he would have killed the four-year-olds down to, to, to none. He, this is what he was doing. He was, that baby is still months old, but he's going up to two years old because he wants to kill this baby. He wants this baby gone. And, he, and he's going to kill them in the surrounding area in case the parents are, are running away. So all of a sudden, these troopers come down and they descend to kill this baby. And dear friends, we need to understand, this is an absolutely horrible, horrible scene. Envision it. Think of the children we have in this church right now. How many young children we have under the age of two. And think of soldiers coming in here and slaughtering all of the boys. Think of that then happening throughout all of Greenville slaughtering every, there's not a two-year-old boy and under alive in Greenville. And they've been snatched out of their mother's arms and their father's arms. And they've been stabbed with spears and thrown on the ground. And then they go and get another one. A great, a painting has been, now you guys can go. A painting was made of this, one of my favorite paintings. It's called The Scene of the Massacre of the Innocents. And it's painted by the Parisian painter, Leon Cognier in 1824. And this is the painting. It's, it's, it loses something for you all in this, kind of. I would urge you to go and look it up. But in this painting, in the upper right hand, upper left hand corner, you can't see it quite clearly, but there's a soldier and he's stabbing a little baby who's in the mother's arms. There's another one who's actually holding a baby and the baby is hanging down from him like this. And then of course you see there's a soldier, you can't see his sword, but there's a dead baby at his feet and he's coming down and this mother is holding two babies and she's running. And then you recognize in this picture that there is this mother who is absolutely horrified in her face and she's trying to nuzzle her child so that it won't speak. The child himself is looking forward and he's a little bit confused as to what's happening here. And you know when you look at this picture that that baby has just moments to live that that mother's heart is about to be broken for the rest of her life. And this painting captures to me the emotion, the power of what this scene was. That's good, guys. Thank you. 
And, uh, and, and this is what's happening here in this scene. Herod has unleashed these people. Now notice what happens then in verse 17. Matthew sees this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a fulfillment. God has already prophesied that this was going to happen. And, it, and he says this in verse 17. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. So he, he, you hear this. And could you imagine what that city was like, Bethlehem was like, that evening with all of those babies dead, all of those families just heartbroken and that happening. And he says, Rachel weeping for her children. That's taking you back to, um, to Jacob's wife, Rachel, and, and weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. And it's so graphic in the original language. Because they are no more. Because they are no more. These little ones that, that, that earlier that day were just a delight, brought so much joy, brought so much happiness, had such a promise of future, by that night were no more. They were dead. They were slaughtered. Then we're told that once he is dead, Herod, Jesus is then brought back to Israel, and then Jesus is placed in Nazareth. But I want us to see something here. I want us to look at this picture, this overall picture, and I want us to see that actually this baby, really, in one sense, this baby caused all this, caused all this. The coming of this baby, the significance of this baby, the importance of this baby starts a war. A war is now starting on the earth with the arrival of this baby. This baby's mission is so important. And this baby is, his, his, he is so dreaded, he is so hated, and casualties are, 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 are starting to mount up because there's this hostile war going on against him. And Herod, in many ways, embodies this war and this hatred of this baby. Herod is hostile. Herod is depraved. Herod is sick. And Herod wants this baby who has come into the world to redeem the world. He wants this baby out. He wants this baby gone. And dear friends, I think we need to look deeper into this to understand something here that's very important. This is the nature of sin. You see, we think of sin as individual sins that are committed. And that's true. That's true, murder and, and hatred and, and, and bigotry and, and, and violence and, 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 and such. Those, those are sins, yes. But overall, sin is something much deeper, more depraved, more wicked than that. Sin is something that is against God and that twists us in terms of how we relate to God. And this is seen in the Bible very, very early on. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says this. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and here's the key, you will be like God. You will be like God knowing good and evil. This is, the, this is the nature of sin. Sin alienates, alienates us from God, from recognizing God as God, 
and makes us equal with God, makes us a rival to God. We then see ourselves as equal to God, a rival God, and we don't want this God in our lives. He is a rival and we want to get rid of him. That's what we looked at last week. That is actually what Herod was doing. He cannot, this is the messianic king that's been promised for millions of years. I'm going to kill him because I can't have a rival. I can't have somebody telling me what to do. I can't be humbled before another king. I am king. I am the sovereign. I am who, 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 is, who, who alone I am going to follow. And dear friends, that's what Satan himself embodies. Satan comes to Eve and, and to Adam and says, you will be like God. You will be equal to God. Let's, let's, let's turn this thing against him. And, let's, and that's what Satan is. Satan's view is he will not rule over me. I will be in rebellion against him. I will fight against him. To use John Milton's famous line about Satan, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And dear friends, that's what sin does to us. It alienates us from God. It makes us hostile to God. We see God as an enemy. We see God as a force and as a reality in our life that we need to get rid of so that we can be God, so that we can call our own our, our, our life on our own terms, so that we can decide. And that's why Romans 8, 7, for instance, says this, the mindset of the flesh <clears throat> is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Look at that verse. The mindset of the flesh, that's, un, that's fallen human beings apart from God's redemption. The mindset of the flesh, you could say the mindset of the human nature, as it were, uh, in, in its fallen state, is hostile to God. Hostile to God. Earlier, Paul said that we are God's enemies. <clears throat> Even early in the book of Romans, Paul says we are God-haters. We, we refuse to acknowledge him. We refuse to thank him. We refuse to obey him. We refuse to serve him. We don't want him in our lives. And dear friends, this is becoming much, much more prevalent and evident in our culture. Let me give you one example. And that's what, uh, for lack of a better phrase or understanding of it, we could call the transgender moment. I want to be very careful here because I want you to understand because Christians have reacted very wrongly in these things. I am not talking about individual people who are struggling with transgenderism. I think that we should have the deepest compassion for such people. I think people who are struggling with their identities to such a deep level, people who feel like that there's somehow a different sex trapped in a, in a body that isn't there, people who feel that level of dis jointedness in their own lives, in their own souls, in their own psyche, I think we should have nothing but compassion for them. I think we should care for them. I think we should love them. I think we should seek to support them and encourage them and help them through this difficult time. I'm not talking about individual transgender people. I'm not talking about that. So please don't twist my words around because I, I feel like Christians have, have been twisted and some Christians have been twisted, but certainly the media has twisted it and made us out to be people who hate people like this. We should never hate people like this. We should have the deepest compassion for them and, and, and pray for them and seek and seek to help them. But dear friends, transgender people make up less than 1% of the population, a very, very small fraction of the population. And dear friends, you, many of you probably have never actually met and interacted with a transgender person. 
You've probably never, and that, that's one of the reasons why I think sometimes there's a lack of compassion, that you've never actually met or interacted with somebody who's struggling in this area, okay? But that's because it's such a small, small slice and percentage of people. So then one has to ask the question as one looks at American culture and says, what the heck is going on here? Why, if it's less than 1% of the people, are we ready to throw open every single bathroom and allow little girls to go into a bathroom where there's potentially a man in the next stall? Why are we willing to destroy women's sports? Why are we willing to destroy all-female colleges? Why are we ready to fill pre-adolescents, 80% of whom will, will, will lose their transgender interest in two years? Why are we filling them with, with, with hormones? And why are we having surgeries upon them? I, I, I listened to a, a, a tragic story of, of, of a man who, who said, when I, I thought that when I started dressing like a woman, I would be fulfilled, and I wasn't. So then I thought when I took all the hormones and began to, I, I would be fulfilled, but I wasn't. So then I thought when I had my, my, my body trans changed and transformed by surgery, then I would be, and I wasn't. And they said, what do you think now? He says, all I think about now is suicide. All I think about now is suicide. Transgender people are less than 1% of the population. They make up a large percentage of the suicides in this country. Why are we on board with this? And I believe that the answer goes all the way back to Eden. You will be like God. We want, to, we want morality on our terms. In fact, we want no morality. We want no rules. We want no guidelines. We want complete autonomy and freedom, although complete and autonomy and freedom always makes new oppressors. We have new people to oppress so that we can have our autonomy and our freedom. We want to go against nature itself if we have to. We are little gods. We are creating our world. We want no marriage. We want open relationships. We want complete sexual freedom. We want if, if, if a child get, uh, becomes, gets in the way or gets in the way of our career, even though it's a beating heart, even though that it is a human being, we want to get rid of that child and kill to get it out of the way. We don't want truth anymore. We want narrative. Why? We have become little gods. And this, dear friends, is the nature of what was animating Herod himself. And lest we as Christians become arrogant and judgmental, we know of the remaining sin in our own lives, the remaining depravity in our own lives. We should never look upon anybody, whether they're transgender or anybody else, and look down upon them with arrogance and judgment. We should know the own sin in our own lives because we are waging a constant, exhausting battle against remaining sin and flesh in our own lives. And don't you just long for heaven? Don't you just long when this battle against sin will be gone? Can't you say the same words that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 when he said this? For I delight in the law of the Lord according to the inward man, but I see another law at work in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin that is in my members. I got this battle going on in me. And then he says, this, how wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God that God has justified me, redeemed me, is beginning to sanctify me. But oh, for that day, that day when I will have a resurrected body and all of the effects of Adam's sin will be gone. No, dear friends, we ourselves struggle. 
How many of you fight to have your devotions? Why do we fight to have our devotions? Why, why do we struggle to just sit down with God and commune with him and talk with him and pray to him and fellowship with him and enjoy the presence of our Abba Father? Why is that hard? Why do we have to drag ourselves to that at times? Why would anything else, no matter how stupid, trivial, foolish, silly, keep us away from that? We'd rather laugh at little memes going down through than interact with the true and living God. Why? Sin has corrupted us and depraved us. Why do we have to drag ourselves to worship in church sometimes? Why do we have to drag ourselves to prayer meeting? Why does the Bible feel like the hardest book in the world to open to read? Why is prayer something that is so hard we have to force ourselves to do it? Why? Because of sin. In fact, dear friends, if we treated our spouse the way we treat God, they'd leave us. Oh, I got to talk to my wife. All right, we'll have dinner together. All right, we'll go out to the movies. Our wives would leave us. And we treat God like that. Why? Because of our remaining sin. Why is there an allure to continue to follow Satan just like Eve and Adam did? Why? What's the draw of the is evil side? It's because of sin. What's the draw of pornography? We know it's wrong. We know it's sick. You know it's destructive. What's the allure of that? What's gossip? We know gossip is horrible. We know it hurts. We know it slanders people. What's the allure? We would never want to be treated like that. Why do we do it? We know our pride stinks. We know our arrogance, our boasting. We know we, we smash our rivals with our words. We crush our enemies. We try to embarrass them. When anybody doesn't treat us like we're number one and we're most important and they, they reflect their light is greater than ours, we cut them down to size. Why? Because we are so depraved and sick and twisted and broken by our sin. And you know what's amazing? God. God is amazing. That's our third heading. Why? Well, first of all, God's amazing because he didn't just destroy this planet. He should have just destroyed this planet. And if he would have just destroyed this planet with all of the fallen children of Adam and Eve and all of the Herods and all of the wicked people, if he would just destroy this planet, the angels would have burst into praise and thanksgiving and glorified his justice and his power and, and, and his goodness and his righteousness that we are finally free from that blot to see that planet that so dishonored you. But God didn't do that. God didn't do that. Why? Because God is amazingly God of grace and love. What did God do? He sent his son into this place. He sent his son into this place, starting as a baby. Think about this story, dear friends. That's God's beloved son. And he's this little baby, and he's wrapped up, and Mary is putting her fingers over his mouth to try to get him out of Bethlehem quietly so that he doesn't get executed and murdered. And they're doing it at night just as the troops are heading toward Bethlehem to destroy them. That's God's son. Dear friends, we have the parental instinct. We know the parental instinct. The parental instinct is to protect our children, to keep them away from such harm, to keep them away from those kinds of dangers, to keep them out of dangerous places and away from dangerous people, especially the more so when they're young. 
Our desire is to protect them. Our desire is to preserve them. And notice what God does. He sends his son into this world to be born as a baby in this world, to take on humanity, that he might be the second Adam and he might be a human being and he might die on our behalf. But he starts off as a baby. God went against all of those parental instincts. Every time God speaks in his word about his son, he says, ah, my beloved son, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved son. Well, here he gave his beloved son to this world. That goes against everything that we, we feel as parents. We've got all these babies around here. Imagine if somebody came in here and tried to threaten these babies. Imagine if somebody tried to threaten these babies. What these fathers would do, how, 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 what these mothers would do to not let you harm that baby. That's their instinct. I'll die before you touch this baby. Look at what God did. Romans 8, 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now notice this next verse. He who did not spare his own son. Paul is very careful under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit right here now. He who did not spare his own son. That word means to preserve somebody from danger, preserve them from harm. He who went against all of that, he went against that parental instinct, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with us also freely give us all things? Keep that one up there, okay, Kendra? Look at how amazing God is. He went against all of that. See, dear friends, there's a, a, a philosophical view called the problem of evil. If God is good and God is loving and God is all-powerful, then why does he allow evil? God is all-powerful and he's loving, why doesn't he stop evil? And I have to tell you that if I were not a Christian, the problem of evil would make me a very nasty, wicked atheist. I would be. I would, I would be opposed to God. I would, I would hate God if it wasn't for Christ and the cross. Because I would say, why did you even make this world and all of this suffering? What's, what's the matter with you? That, that, and, and people do that. I read, I read books by people who this is where they're coming from. And, 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 and as much as I, I think they're wrong because they haven't seen Christ, I, I, I get where they're coming from. But I could never go there. I will never go there. You know why? Because God gave his son. Because God entered right into the evil. Because the little Jesus is being whisked away and this, this, he's being hated and he's has to live as a refugee now. And then as a refugee in Egypt, then he has to come and live, live in Nazareth, which is a, a rough and tumble community. And then, and, then, and then he's going to eventually be executed on the cross for my sin. I have no problem with the problem of evil because God has entered in to make it right. God is doing it for his own glory, and God is showing the glory of his grace in this. You see, dear friends, God did not destroy this wicked world. He entered into it. He didn't destroy this world that is full of suffering and pain and persecution. He entered into it, and he embodied it, and he lived it out. And Jesus himself, who would die, who would die not only for Bethlehem and those weeping mothers and those broken families and those babies that died, Jesus who would also die for those soldiers who were doing that wicked thing because God in his grace and God in his mercy is providing salvation through his son. What those babies went through in Bethlehem, Jesus is going to go through in 30-some years. 
even worse, even more so. Because God in his love and his grace is bringing out a work of redemption. What are we supposed to do with this? Look at this verse. What are we supposed to do with what we see here? What are we supposed to do with this God who gives his son, who puts his son in this dangerous place under Herod with these soldiers whisking through the night in danger? What are we supposed to do with this God? What are we supposed to do? Well, look at how Paul does. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if this God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all to the cross, how shall he not with him, this son that he's given us, how shall he not freely give us all things? Can you sit here today and say to yourself, I hope you can. God did this for me. God sent his son into the world for me. God's son died for me. God loved me so much that he didn't spare his son. He didn't spare his son and stop his son. from. No, no, no. My son is not going to go to earth. He's not going to be chased around by Herod's henchmen. My son is not going to be going through the palace, the, the Sinai desert at night. My son is not going to be. My son is not going to be despised. He's not going to be spitted upon. He's not going to have a crown of thorns on his head. He's not going to have his back whipped open. He's not going to be laughed at. He's not going to be nailed. He's not going to hang. He's not going to die. No, not my son. No, he's too beloved to me. No, he gave his son up. So that we could be his sons. The son of God became the son of man. That the sons of men could become the sons of God. Dear ones, dear ones, if God did this for you. If God so loved you. If God in his grace did this for you. You should feel very loved by God. You should feel very loved by God. Why? Because you are very loved by God. Very precious to God. Think of how much God cares for you. Think of how much God is for you, that he made this investment in you. Think of how much God wants your good. He wants your good. Think of how concerned God is for your well-being. Think of how deep you actually are in the heart of God. And think how now, in light of this, God is ordering everything in your life, even the chaotic things that seem to you chaotic, even the struggles that seem are genuine struggles, even the trials, God is for you because he gave his son for you and his son willingly came for you. You should feel very loved by God. Oh, I hope that you do. I hope that you've come to see and understand and trust what Christ has done for you. There's one other line of application. Jesus was hated, and Jesus still is. 
The war is still going on. The world still hates him. And if we follow him, we will suffer too. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses, verse 8, Paul, Timothy write, Paul writes this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now, I want you to read this as if you're reading this today to yourself. Don't be ashamed of the word of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, of who Jesus is. Nor of me, his prisoner, Paul writes. Then he wrote something that would hit me as very strange when I was reading this recently in my devotions. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. That hit me really strange. I thought, what a strange reality. The word gospel there, translated gospel, is the Greek word good news, good announcement. The gospel is good news. God sent his son to die. There's freedom, forgiveness of all sin. And, and he calls you to, to eternal life. He calls you. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Notice what Paul says there. He says, join me, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. Who suffers bringing good news? Hey, I got, hey, guess what? I, I, I got a gift for you. Hey, I got good news for you. Hey, I got, you got the job. Hey, I got good news for you. You know, you're going to get the promotion. Hey, I got the good news for you. You have a new grandchild. Hey, I got good news for you. Who suffers for bringing good news? This verse tells you how sick this world is. That people suffer for telling the good news. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the good news. He goes on to put this in this very large category, it's a very large uh, uh, context, verse 9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Next chapter, Paul says this to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're in a war, dear friends. And they hate Jesus. Second Timothy, the next chapter, Paul writes this. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Dear friends, as our culture is becoming more and more autonomy-oriented, we are God. We call the shots. Those of us who sing such politically subversive songs as he will reign forever. Behold our God, behold our king. Those of us who will be loyal to God, loyal to his reign, loyal to his king, are going to suffer persecution. It is now 1120 at night in China. And our dear friends who serve there know of men, pastors, who are shivering right now in a prison cell. They've been there for 18 years under hard labor for preaching the good news. They're sitting there shivering, trying to get a little bit of sleep before they go out to hard labor tomorrow, fulfilling their 25-year sentence, wondering what their life wife looks like after 18 years. They haven't seen them. How their little children, who are now 21, 27, 30, they haven't seen what, what they look like. And they're suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. There are families in Myanmar whose Christmas was greatly saddened today because their fathers or their brothers were taken out because they're Christians and were hacked to death. There are families in Nigeria 
who are suffering because their families have been had suffered loss because they're Christians. Dear friends, when our turn comes, if our turn comes, our turn may not come. We may die full of faith, surrounded by loved ones, with the greatest medical care, like our dear sister Mary Jane did, full of faith, looking forward to heaven. But if our day comes where we must stand with the hated Jesus Christ and claim him our king, are we ready? Are we ready? Do we love him enough that we will not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? Let's search our hearts. I'm a coward by nature. I don't want to have to do this. But there's something deeper in me than my cowardice, because I've seen it in me. And that is not courage. I didn't get a lot of that in, in the womb. That's love for Jesus. Because of his love for me. Dwell in the love of Jesus. And by God's grace and power, when necessary, we'll be as bold as lions. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have risen from the dead and you are exalted on high. And you are sitting on your throne of grace and glory. Resurrected body. Once again established as king of all kings and lord of all lords. The demons tremble at your name. Satan hates you but is absolutely fearful knowing the day is coming. When you will return to this earth and you will judge. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that the scars in your hands and feet inside were for us. We thank you that you're our shepherd and our friend. We thank you that you were spirited out of that little, that village, very much threatened, and that you eventually laid down your life because you love us. Lord Jesus, all we can say is thank you. Thank you so much, and we love you. And here we are. Take us. Use us. And as this generation begins, continues to darken and be hostile toward you, we don't want to be the laughingstocks. We don't want to be the ones who are considered backward and awkward and, and such. We don't want to be the stupid ones or even the dangerous ones. We don't want that. But we're willing to do whatever and be called whatever and be treated whatever because we will not, we will not separate ourselves from you. We will not be ashamed of you. We feel it's an honor to live for you, to serve you, and if need be, even to die for you. That would be an honor. All we need is your grace and strength. May you be glorified. And when you return to earth, may you find that there are still faithful people here who love you and continue to share the good news to a world that you're seeking to redeem. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen.